And kids, second grade, uh, kindergarten to second grade, you can start making your way uh, out to the library for your story time. And as you do, I want to remind you, I want you to remember, Halloween's over and now it's time to transition. It's Christmas time. It's time to start singing the songs and decorating the tree and making your list. So one thing, kids who are staying, you can uh, use the bulletin to uh, start working on your Christmas list. And uh, I kind of feel sorry for kids because I don't know where you go to collect all the things in one place that you need to have on your list. So kids, part of your assignment this afternoon, I want you to ask your parents, say, tell me about the Sears catalog. <laughs> so here, here's this thing that existed that was amazing and no longer exists. But it was this catalog that Sears would send out, and if you can imagine, they would mail it to every home in the country, and it was over a thousand pages. I mean, it was the size of a phone book, which you also don't know what is. <laughs> and it was filled with every conceive, like every imaginable thing. And part of the uh, allure of Christmas is that you would spend hours going through it and circling and recircling and trying to get your list together. I can still remember like the, the emotional pull on page, I think it was 137, that had the, the red Chicago Bulls starter jacket that I just lusted after with all of my being when I was in seventh grade from the Sears catalog. And it's kind of imagine to think like that just doesn't exist anymore. And at one time, Sears was the largest retailer in the world. And their headquarters were the largest building in the world. They were the largest employer in the world. And they were the largest publisher in the United States. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, it's just gone. And so, kids, I want you to keep in mind, one day, 30 years from now, you'll be sitting around at, like, Thanksgiving with your siblings, and you'll be talking about something from your childhood. And you'll be like, you, you remember, what was that? Like, what was that? Like, who made that phone that we were so obsessed with and we wanted? It was like a, was it the pear? No, it was Apple. Or you remember, like, you remember, you remember when you used to have to like type, like with your hands, you had to type in things into the computer to get information. And we had something like, what do we call it? Do we call it like go goggle that? Was it goggles? No, it's Google. And see, there's, there's something like either Amazon or Apple or Google or Tesla, like one of these massive. They're just not going to exist 30 years from now. The trouble is you don't know which one is going to be. And so you think, all right, how can something so like majestic, so, so stable and strong, how does it fall? How can that happen? We're looking at the plagues uh, and as we go through Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to go 7 all the way to 1029. And then we're just going to hit some of the highlights this week and next week. And as we journey through Exodus, you know, one of the key questions we're asking is, all right, how does this happen? This, in many ways, is a case study one of the mightiest empires and the most powerful people on the planet that the world has ever seen, and it's this dramatic and cataclysmic fall. 
And so as we go through this, you know, one of the key questions, all right, the children of Israel, uh, how did they move from being this oppressed multitude of slaves to this free, self-governing people? And how does Moses go from being in a stranger in a strange land to become this leader and this founder? And both of these transformations are going to require a clash of civilizations. So here we see this clash, and we're going to go and looking at the plagues. And so in your bulletins, you kind of see the plagues kind of written out in a couple different ways. In the kids' bulletin, this actually might be more helpful for everybody. Emily put it in picture form so you can see the pictures. And you just sweep through the plagues, and they run from the stomach-churning discomfort of the spoiled water to the cringe-inducing invasion of the frogs, the exasperating annoyance of the lice and flies, to the economically devastating sickness of the animals, to the personally debilitating pandemic of the boils, to the environmentally disastrous hail and locusts, to the shockingly eerie and terrifying total darkness, and then culminating in just the devastating, heart-stopping sadness of the death of the firstborn sons. And in many ways, this is a terrifying tale, a tale of how the mighty can fall, how an unrepentant leader can bring devastation on his people. But it's also the tale of a redeemed people and how God will repeat over and over in this whole section is that there's something he wants you to know. So there's something we're supposed to learn. We're supposed to learn in this account that the Lord is supreme, not only over Pharaoh, but of all of creation. We're supposed to learn that the Lord will not tolerate injustice, especially oppression of the vulnerable. We're supposed to learn that the, when the Lord publicly humiliates Pharaoh, that he's going to judge them for his oppression and he will redeem his people. We learn what type of God is. But we also learn a whole host of other things. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple of the lessons we learned, three of them. And then next week, we're going to add two more lessons. But we kind of look at, when we look at Egypt, one of the things we're meant to learn is what's the true nature of this house of bondage. When we look at the plagues, we're supposed to learn what type of surgical strikes does God unleash to help set us free from that house of bondage. And we look at Pharaoh, we learn how the mighty can fall. Or not just the mighty, how anyone can fall. So a couple of lessons. Let's start first, Egypt. What do we learn? We learn about the, the true nature of the house of bondage. Oh, going all through Exodus, whenever they look back and they refer to Egypt, uh, God always refers to it as that house of bondage. But what is Egypt. What is it meant to symbolize? As we go through each of the plagues, you know, these aren't just kind of random acts of violence. They're all very symbolic. He's striking at a, a worldview, a way of seeing the world. You know that kind of old joke, denial, it ain't just a river in Egypt. You know, Egypt, I don't know how to make it rhyme or anything. Egypt's not just the city in Egypt. It's meant to demonstrate and illustrate something so much bigger. Augustine talks about there's two cities. There's always been two cities. There's a city of man and the city of God. It's that two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city, the city of man, by the love of self, all the way to the point of contempt of God, and the heavenly city, by the love of God, all the way to the point of contempt for self. The former, the city of man, in a word, glories in itself, but the latter glories in the Lord. 
This one seeks glory from men, but this one, the greatest glory is God. Uh, this one lifts up its head in its own pompous pride, and this one says, Thou, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. In many ways, Egypt is meant to symbolize the pinnacle of this earthly city of man. And so everybody who's ever lived in a, a kind of a, a highly prosperous place that's filled with the world's winners can recognize what's happening in Egypt. So a couple things to know as the plagues strike. Uh, if you have your bulletins or I'm not sure, Egypt. Egypt, the first is it's, uh, it's, Egypt is the most fertile and abundant land in the world at this point. Remember, this is a place of agricultural plenty, and this is the place everyone in the world goes to when there's famine. Remember how many times you're just reading Genesis up until this point, every time a famine comes to the land, the first reaction is, ah, oh, we need to go down to Egypt. That's where the food is. That's where the prosperity is. And so part of the reason why is Egypt, in many ways, uh, they could have been tagged the sunshine state because it was always sunny. And the way the agricultural cycle, they weren't dependent on pesky, uncontrollable things like rain. The way the agricultural cycle worked is every year the Nile River would flood flood all of the plains, and then it would fertilize the ground, and this incredible, lavish, abundant harvest would just pop up. Even in the time about 2,000 years later, during the time of the Caesars, they would call Egypt is the breadbasket of the world. It's where all the world's food is. But because of this, it created this cycle where the sun and then the Nile were personified as, as the gods, the being, the things that bring us fertility and life and prosperity. So because of that, in Egypt, it's a place where they are obsessed with health and vitality and what they call ageless beauty. That's the obsession. You know, it's a place where the sun's always shining and, uh, you know, it was in Egypt that for the very first time, what the men would do is the men would shave their entire body. And the reason why is because they, they wanted, um, they didn't want any sign of aging. So, you know, the hair turns gray, it's got to go. The hair starts to go, it's got to go. That's a sign of aging. And so the, the, the idea was to, you know, to hold on. So for both men and women... You would try to uh, bring your, yourself into this, this moment of ageless beauty. And then the fundamental goal in life was to hold on to that as long as possible. And so it was the bronze skin, the smooth skin, the ideal image. That's why 2,000 years later when Mark Antony saw Cleopatra, he thought this is the most beautiful woman in the world. Because she was at the very top of the social pyramid, and they spent a whole lot of their money, wealth, resources, and power to stay that way. As many of you know, beauty's expensive. It can be painful. We had a New Year's party at on our block, and the theme was something like, uh, I can't, we called it Fancy New Year's. It had a better title than that. But everybody was going to dress up in like their best like 1920s outfit. And so our girls, for the first time, kind of wore like an evening gown, and they wore heels. 
And about 30 minutes in, the girls are talking to one of like the, you know, our neighbors who's like in her early 30s and like, how long do we have to wear these? These are awful. And one of the neighbors, I said, sorry, girls, beauty is pain. <laughs> Cleopatra would have said, absolutely. And it is, it is worth it. I've told you some of this before, but this, is, this illustration is from 2002. When I was a youth ministry in 2002, one of the things I thought was unnecessarily oppressing the, the girls in our youth ministry was this false image of what beauty, true beauty really is. So this was in the time where friends, you know, the friends craze and Jennifer Aniston had just been labeled by another thing that doesn't exist anymore, this thing called People Magazine. And they would put out these, ma like these magazines and they would have, you know, the most beautiful person of the year. And uh, she won it. And the tagline was uh, Jennifer Aniston's unassuming beauty. So like the image, the idea is that, you know, she just rolls out of bed like this. So I put our girls on. We did a, about a month-long research project. You see how fun I was as a youth minister. We did a month-long research project where we started researching what, is, what does her beauty, monthly beauty regimen actually cost. This is $2,002, so who knows what it would be now. But then it was $11,000 a month. See, that unassuming, one of the girls was like, oh, my word, she spends twice what my daddy makes in a year. <laughs> That's unassuming beauty for you. And of course, everybody in Egypt at the top of the pyramid would have said, the, absolutely. This is what life is all about. You, you find the ideal image and you hold on to it for all it's worth. And what that meant is there was this whole supporting cast of symbolic gods who were all meant to serve kind of those uh, impulses. So like Hecate was a god of fertility, and it was, she was shaped in the image of a frog, as a frog. But it was the image of, of fertility, and the bulls were emblems of masculine virility and strength, and the cow was an image of, of rebirth and uh, rejuvenation. Even the dung beetle, the dung beetle was celebrated as the image of how life can come out of death and immortality, and you can rise and so this whole supporting cast of gods to help you. So what that meant is in this world, change is very unwelcome. You get things the way you like it, and then you do not change. You hold on to it. But it was also a world that was obsessed with the visual. Kind of the technical word, it, the, the visual was given epistemic preference. It's the reason why they wrote in hieroglyphics in pictures. It's not because they didn't know how to write. It's because the visual was supreme. It was a world of pictures, a world of images. And then there was a technologically obsessed world, but it's one of the most advanced technological civilizations we have ever seen. You know, it's hard to imagine that in this time, depending on the timing, how you date it, the pyramids are at least a thousand years old. And at some, they were the tallest building in the world till probably the Eiffel Tower, maybe a couple things before that. This is amazing technology, but it was all intended, meant for the service of stopping death and decay. You know, the, the pharaohs and the tombs and the mummification and the embalming was all the, the, the technological advancements to stop and pause death so we don't decay. And the idea is we'll embalm ourselves and tell our, you know, who we call scientists, they call magicians, and tell our magicians can find a way to bring us back to life. 
So they would look at things like, you know, let's freeze your brain in a cryogenic chamber. And they say, absolutely. That's like, of course that's what you should do. And so it was a technologically obsessed, and then it was a, but with, with this, it was a very narrow group on top. And it was a profoundly dehumanizing world. So if you weren't in that narrow group on top, you existed to serve their, their, their purposes. And in many ways, Israel is meant to be the anti-Egypt. God calls that house not the house of liberation or a house of beauty. He calls it a house of bondage. But if you give yourself to these things, you are in slavery. And it's worth pausing and thinking, like, which world would we be more at home in? You know, on the one hand, the Egyptians' obsession with beauty is not wrong in and of itself. Beauty's not the problem. The problem is the definition of it. So Peter will even tell you, don't pursue um, or pursue beauty that cannot fade. That's imperishable. Yes, pursue that. But don't define it as smooth skin and this gene size. That will fade. The beauty that will not fade is the gentle and quiet spirit. So what's the proper definition? And the problem is not that they were trying to pursue victory over death. The problem is that they were just looking to the wrong things to swallow death up and defeat it. So what we see in Egypt is the centrality of selfishness, kind of unhinged. And it becomes a house of bondage, becomes real slavery. And each of the plagues is meant to be a surgical strike to set you free from that house of bondage. In many ways, it's a re-education seminar. You're supposed to learn where your hope is and where healing can really be found. Now, as we go through the plagues, a couple of things I want you to see is the way they can be structured. The literary structure... We call them the ten plagues. In a lot of ways, you can call it like the nine plagues plus the one. That doesn't quite have the same ring as, as the ten plagues. And even plagues is somewhat of a, you know, a difficult word. Uh, only the tenth is called a plague. All the other ones are called strikes or blows. And so remember what we looked at last week from chapter uh, 4, where God has told Pharaoh that you have my firstborn son, and I want you to set him free. And Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so remember the context is this is a hostage situation. God's firstborn is being held hostage, so each one of the plagues is an intentional strike to strike him and say, let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Or I'm going to have to bring out the bigger guns each time. And you can look the way it's structured. There's three, and literary, the literary structure, as you can see how each one of them are set up. So plagues 1, 4, and 7 are all set up the same way. And you can see in chapter 7. Uh, and now we're about to just do a roller coaster through all four chapters, so you can try and track along or just hang on. But in, uh, in the first plague, in chapter 7, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that you turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of heavens, has, the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But thus far you have not obeyed. And thus said the Lord, by this you shall know 
that I am the Lord. So the first one, notice, go to Pharaoh in the morning and then find the beginning of four in 820. And the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And then you can go to uh, number seven, plague Plague 7 in chapter 9, verse 13, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. So one, four, seven, all structured. You go to them in the morning. You announce. Here's the announcement. And then for two, five, and eight, each one is framed by, it says, go, to, go into Pharaoh and say to him, beginning in number two. Beginning in number 5, chapter 9, verse 1. Go into Pharaoh and say to him. The beginning in number 8 in chapter 10. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, I have hardened his heart. And then uh, number 3, number 6, number 9, it's all the same thing. It just says, now rise up and act. So each has a literary, uh, intentional literary structure moving in those movements of three. And one of the key ideas is to teach Pharaoh and to teach us that these aren't just flowing a natural current. They are purposeful and deliberate actions. So you can kind of frame them as three different uh, clusters, kind of the, the literary movement. But also there's kind of a, a logical or almost theological unit to each of them in pairs. So you look at pair one. In the first pair... Uh, with the Nile and the, the frogs, the waters turn to blood and the frogs emerge. And this is destroying and, and giving a parody of the life-giving power of the Nile. And then the second pair is the gnats and the flies. And these are irritating pests of insects that come upon the ground and just would make up from the ground that make life miserable. And then the middle pair, the cattle and the boils, widespread disease afflicts first the domesticated animals, which is the source of their, their lavish wealth, and then it affects the people, the humans. It touches them. Then you have the hail and the locust. That comes from the sky, and it wrecks havoc on the crops, which is really the, the mainstay of the food supply, and their security, and their reason for thinking their, their superiority among the nations. And then the final pair is total darkness and then death. And even in that they're, they're framed, we start with the Nile and we end with the sun, the two sources of our life and vitality, the things we love and what we worship and what we put our hope in, they're both being snuffed out. So there's a movement from the waters to the earth, to the living things on the earth, to the heavens culminating in the sun itself. And it's really as if creation, the movement in creation from Genesis 1 is now working in reverse and creation is working backwards. And the idea here that we're supposed to learn as we see this is that when you violate God's design, you unleash the forces of disintegration and chaos into your life. There's a parallel between the ten plagues and the ten commandments. Even this is how God has designed life to be lived to the fullest. And if you break them, they break you. And so it, it undoes how God made you in the world. So often we can read these and they can make us a little uncomfortable. Like, All right, why, is, why, is, why is God doing this to them? And anyways, it's unleashing the unavoidable consequences of what sin brings into the world. It's, you know, turned 44 this year, so it's time to start taking certain aspects of health a little more seriously. So a couple went to the doctor and ran some blood tests and 
blood test came back and then they sent this thing. So, all right, what, there's a couple things we want to start monitoring because family history and then um, some poor dietary habits. So he gave it this uh, GCM, a continual glucose monitor. He said, all right, for two weeks, I want you to don't, very shrewd. For two weeks, I don't want you to make any changes to your life. Just wear this uh, continual glucose monitor, and every about 15 minutes, just start tracking the glucose levels and how the food you're eating is affecting that. Now, one of the things that uh, you know, Cynthia has been trying to adjust certain dietary commitments I have for our entire life. And she could say it over and over, and it just doesn't land. But there is, there's an amazing power when, you know, we got to the end of day one. I was like, oh, my word. You would not believe the effect that this has on my blood sugar. Hmm? <laughs> you didn't need that fancy device. To, you could have listened. But, you know, there's just some things you can't really be told. You have to be shown. And then once you're shown... It just kind of changes the way you see life. One of the things, the plagues, I mean, God has told them all of these things, and they are a living demonstration to show you the futility of putting your health and your hope and your life into these things. They're being shown this. It's a strategical strike on the world of Egypt. And so but then the last thing we learned, Pharaoh, we can learn how the mighty, mighty fall. How can they fall so fast? You know, it's really an interesting case study. You know, G.K. Chesterton joked that, uh, you know, um, said there's only one way to stand up straight, but there's a whole bunch of ways you can fall down. And even Jim Collins in his book, How the Mighty Fall, said this is so much harder of a research project because there's really only one path to go from good to great, but there's a whole bunch of ways you can go from great to <laughs> flat on your face. And as you look, you say, all right, what's happening here? What causes the, the collapse and the fall for Pharaoh and Egypt. And if we try and look at it from Pharaoh's point of view, I mean, there's a lot of things you see. I mean, he slowly loses one by one all the sources of his confidence and his command and what he has under his control. Even his own supporters counsel him to surrender and submission, but he's going to double down and not relent. Because, I mean, the last thing a strong ruler can do is appear to be weak, this is a show of strength. You know, it's hard to kind of know what is just stubborn, you know, stiff-neckedness. You know, think about like, the difference between, all right, what's the difference between Pharaoh and Abraham Lincoln? Like in the middle of the Civil War, over and over, Lincoln's counselors and advisors were saying, you have to surrender. You have to stop this. You're going to ruin us all. And he didn't. And we're very glad and thankful he didn't. But then Pharaoh doesn't either. So what happened? You know, Pharaoh, some of the things you see is he willingly abandons his country to ruin in order to hold on to his own authority. It's interesting that at no point does he attempt to heal the wounds of his people. He doesn't even ever cry out to at least his own Egyptian gods. At every point, he seems to be self-sufficient and his own kind of personal desires is supreme and all important. Nothing ever affects him until it comes and strikes his own children. He'll continually save face. But one of the hard things, right, how, do, how do we make sense of how this works? Because one of the most puzzling aspects of the story of the plagues 
at the same time, I think one of the most interesting and important is the seemingly moral dilemma that it seems like the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then as a result, he punishes him for having that hard heart. So like, how do we make sense of this? If you read over and over and over, it's, but Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not listen. Pharaoh, his heart was hardened and he would not let the people go. So how can we think about that? You know, maybe one helpful way to think about it is to look at something kind of different, but similar in the story, the, the, the plague of the hail. And that's the uh, seventh plague. And to me, this is the one that's the longest. It gets the most kind of airtime. And, you know, there's a couple different ways you could, you could describe the, the, the plague of the hail. You know, you could give the, the meteorologist account of it and say, all right, how did, how did this plague happen? And you say, well, hailstones are formed when raindrops are carried upward by thunderstorm updrafts into extremely cold areas of the atmosphere and they freeze. And then the hailstorms then grow by colliding with liquid water drops and they freeze into the, on the hailstone surface. And then if the water freezes instantly when colliding with the hailstones, cloudy ice will form, air bubbles will be trapped in the newly formed ice, then the hail will fall when it becomes heavier than the atmospheric updrafts. I, you know, I read that from the internet. <laughs> you say, all right, well, that's how the hail happened. So you can kind of give the, the, the meteorological account but then in chapter 9, verse 18, look what uh, God says in chapter 9, verse 18. He says, Behold, about that time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from this day until now. So, like, what caused the hail? Was it the frozen ice crystals that formed in the atmosphere? Or did God cause it? Or is that even the wrong question? You know, the Lord acts in accordance with the mechanisms that he is the creator has built into the creation to achieve a particular end, but he uses, manages, directs, and controls the way those things work. But then if you think about and apply it to our life, there's this kind of dual dynamic. He created us in such a way where the choices we make contribute to the forming of our character and the character, once it's formed, makes certain habitual choices uh, either very easy or very difficult. I mean, you all know sometimes it takes a long time for an action to become a habit and for a habit to become instinctual. But at some point, there's just this shift where it just happens instinctually. And so we think about like Pharaoh's heart and how he fell. You can actually look at chapter 9, verse 34 to 10.1, because we get all the different angles. In 9.34, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart, he and all his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. In 10.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine to them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so you could tell the story of Pharaoh's heart really from three different angles. 
you could kind of tell it to be interesting if you could like take a cardiologist back to Pharaoh and put him on the EKG machine and the cardiologist maybe could tell one story. Who knows? Maybe there was excessive plaque buildup. But you can also tell the story from Pharaoh's perspective where he's making these moral choices where his heart becomes increasingly set in its ways and committed more and more irreversibly to a certain course of action that's going to bring upon genocide for his people and destruction for his land. But then the other, you could look at the perspective from the Lord as the Lord who's the moral ruler of the universe. And at some point in Pharaoh's life, this point of no return had been, had been reached and the hardness of his heart must now be judged and certain consequences imposed upon them. So on the one hand, from Pharaoh's perspective, we're reminded, forcefully reminded, that the, the choices we make are both the privilege and the price of being human. I mean, we learn that we're responsible people and our choices really matter. We have some privilege. You're called to make responsible choices, given the opportunity and obligation to live in the light of the foreseeable consequences. That's the, the, the price we pay for good or for ill, for fashioning a character. But on the other hand, we learn that God is sovereign and he rules over these things. We are responsible and he's sovereign. And sometimes making sense of that can be difficult, but Another G.K. Chesterton quote, he said, so much of the things we believe in orthodoxy, he called it the divine dance. He says, with one hand, you hold on to one truth. Another hand, you hold on to another. And sometimes it just shakes you. And the goal is just not to let go. So Jesus is fully God, and we hold on to that. And he's fully man, and we hold on to it wherever it pulls. And on the other hand, God is absolutely sovereign. And then we are responsible agents, and we hold on to these things. And so possibly, I mean, the most obvious truth looking through these plagues as we go through the story is of the immense and irreversible and irresistible power of the Lord who has total command over every possible resource and has total sway over the total field of human life, over every person, every place, every event, all things and everything and all people lie uncovered and lay bare before his eyes the one with whom we'll have to give an account. And so it's just worth pausing because the supreme danger for Pharaoh and the supreme danger for anyone uh, that could fall is thinking about, all right, what areas am I tempted or at risk to harden my heart towards? Where have you been dulled in your conscience and stopped listening to the word of the Lord? Pharaoh's problem is he ignored the word of the Lord. He insisted on his own way. So where in your own life are you tempted to become hard? And then another thing we learn as we walk through the deliverance, I'm amazed in this whole scenario, is ever wonder, like, what are the people doing? You know, we actually don't hear from the people from 521 all the way until about 15 as the story you know, sweeps on. It becomes more and more kind of this contrast or conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, and we see this incredible power being unleashed by the Lord, but all of that power is unleashed for the purpose of their deliverance, of achieving redemption for his people. And all throughout the whole episode, they're silent. You know, the last word we heard from them 
in 521 was a word of complaint, a word of revulsion at Moses, a word of despairing towards God and saying, look, you promised us something and not only have things not gotten better, it's gotten worse. These are not the kind of people you think would deserve this display of power and this tremendous display of affection. So one of the things we can say with certainty as we go through this story is the wonder of divine mercy where the Lord's people, who are the subject of his saving activity and this deliverance, this people destined for deliverance, uh, they did not deserve it. But their job was to open humbly to receive it. And one of the reasons we do every we do communion here every week is because we're reminding ourselves of this lavish gift of the Lord to give the body of his son and the blood of his son to purchase our deliverance is not something that we have earned throughout the week because we are the ultimate Egyptians with smooth skin and no hair and perfectly shaved body. That's not why we've earned it. We haven't earned it at all. But humbly, joyfully, we receive it as a lavish gift of mercy. So here at Trinity, we do communion every week. And the way we do is you come to one of the stations and you take the bread and then you dip it in the wine as two symbols of the deliverance that he purchased for his wayward people. There'll be two stations up front, two in the back. The one in the back corner has, uh, is gluten-free. And so um, I'll pray, and then once uh, I've finished praying and our servers are in place, you come. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of, that's displayed in these plagues. We pray that you would help us not to be the kind of people who give themselves up to the world of the Egyptians. But what we learn the lesson. We learn to look for where true beauty can be found. We learn to look where the true uh, defeat of death can be found. So we pray that no one in here will, will stumble and fall as Pharaoh did with a hard heart insisted on their own ways. But we would be humble and open to hear your word, to receive your grace, and to respond joyfully, thankfully, and faithfully. And this we ask in Christ's holy name.